Hey, it's good to see you again. Let me just welcome you again to Uplift. Uh, my name is Kyle, and uh, it's just a delight to be here. Uplift is so much fun. Uh, it's just great. The worship is great. The time of, together is great. The fellowship is great. And I'm just uh, so blessed uh, to be a part of this. I want to let you know that this message is going to be streamed on Sunday mornings for our online Bible class called The Conversation. So if you're watching us on Sunday morning, I'm glad you're here. Go ahead and log into the chat and say hi. We are in a series called the American League Championship Series here at Uplift. I've waited a long time to say that. <laughs> We're in a series here called uh, Meet Jesus. And in this series, we are allowing ourselves to be reintroduced to Jesus. I want to start tonight by showing you an image. You've probably uh, seen this image before. You probably recognize this. These are the hands of Adam and God. It's painted by the Italian artist Michelangelo. You've probably seen these, and some of you have probably even seen it in person. They're part of a larger fresco painting called The Creation of Adam. It's painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican City. Michelangelo painted this along with several other panels about 700 years ago in uh, 1508. The right hand in this image, you probably already know this, but uh, humor me for a minute, belongs to God or is supposed to represent God's hand. And the hand on the left belongs to Adam. Let me show you the larger picture here. Uh, We can't show all of it, but we're going to show at least half of it. The legacy of this painting, by the way, cannot be underestimated. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is one of the most, if not the most, and there was some conflicting research here, maybe the most Googled painting. It's the most searched painting, searched for paintings on Google. People want to know about it. They want to see it. It's pretty impressive. And what's kind of cool about this, this is painted in the Sistine Chapel. And so where Michelangelo meant for this image to Uh, represent the moment that God gave life to Adam, right? That's the point of this. Where he painted it in the chapel in the Vatican City in the very day where he painted it was the very space where his contemporaries would gather to elect the next pope or really the next representative, at least what they believe, God, the next representative of God on planet Earth. This is a a pretty powerful image. It's a pretty powerful image. But this painting actually attests to a much richer heritage of the hand of God, actually richer maybe than what even Michelangelo could even offer. So what I'm going to do here as we begin is I'm going to show you just a few things. We probably know this, a few things that the hand of God has done. I'm going to, and and I'm going to show you these, and I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to these places and to kind of make sure you kind of have them bookmarked. These are, this is good stuff. And I'm going to show you these. I'm going to provide just a, a very brief commentary on each of these. So first, Um, the hand of God not only created Adam and Eve, right, but also created specifically the heavens and the earth. So this is from Isaiah chapter 48. You can turn there. You can write it down. This is from verse 13. I'm going to read this to you. Isaiah 48 verses 12 and 13. Isaiah the prophet with the word of the Lord says this, listen to me, Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I'm the first and I'm the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. And when I call to them, when I call to them, they stand forth together. Now, this passage is 
is, is a really powerful testament because it's actually God's commentary on himself. He's calling Israel by name. I don't want you to overlook that. That's pretty significant. The, the infinite God whose hand fashions all of creation is stooping low in this passage to make himself known, to make himself noticed. In this chapter, in Isaiah chapter 42, God promised earlier the deliverance of Israel from their current captivity. And his appeal to the prediction that they would be freed, his appeal to that, his, his prediction of their deliverance is built upon his claim that he's the one that created everything. He's the only creator of the universe. And so he's the only one that can state with certainty what will happen and why it's going to happen. So first, that the hand of God created the heavens and the earth. Here's another one. You've probably seen this. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. The next thing that the hand of God has done is that it delivered the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery. You've, you've read this before. This is a pretty famous verse. If not, it's worth writing it down. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you, the Lord says, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest, you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is one of the loveliest passages to me in all of the Old Testament. I refer to Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 often. Let me kind of give you some context here in this chapter, earlier in the chapter in verse 1. God has actually called Israel. This is a big one. You need to know this. That's why I'm going to talk about it for just a minute. He called Israel to destroy the people who lived in Canaan. That's it's kind of hard to stomach. It's kind of hard to read that, to, to, dis, to completely destroy them. But I think it's important to note that, that this is a really poetic passage, and God is really appealing more to the poetry of the moment rather than the literal go and kill everybody, anybody that you see. God is saying something that, that I think is often misinterpreted. God is just telling them, you got to wipe out the evil in this place. This place is covered up in evil. And you need to destroy all of the evil that presides in this space. Because he goes from something very violent, if we, if we like that interpretation, to something very lovely. And so a lot of people are thinking, there's got to be something else going on here. God is calling them to destroy the evil. And then that call, he's going to be with them, but he's calling them to do something, leads to this confession that God has for his people. And he confesses his love for them. What, what an amazing word in this passage. He, he chose them. He selected them. And he loved them. In fact, the word for love that is used, that God uses for his people in this passage, is most often used in the Old Testament to describe marriage. God is saying he's wed himself to Israel. And because he loved them and is in a covenant with them, he saved them. He loves them. 
So the hand that created the heavens and the earth, right, was also the very same hand that delivered his people from slavery because he loved them. Here's the third thing. God holds our time in his hands. This is from Psalm chapter 31. It's an interesting phrase, right? God holds our time or our times in his hand. Let me read this to you. This is Psalm 31, verses 14 and 15. But I trust in you, Lord, and I say, you're my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Psalm 31 is a doozy, y'all. It's a big chapter in Psalms. It's a big one. In fact, in that very Psalm, we we get the phrase that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord and, the, and vice versa, or it's even like a watch in the night that's a few verses earlier. In this psalm, the psalmist is actually lamenting the frustrations of life, that life is hard, it's tough, and the psalmist is lamenting that, and, but realizes in that lament that somehow God controls everything anyway. So even if it's tough, God still controls every action and every event. Now, we're not going to dissect that right here, but it's enough to note that the psalmist believes, and we believe this, that God is involved in every minute and in every second. And the psalmist realizes this as he's crying out to the Lord, which leads to this, what we just read, this expression of trust. The hand that created the heavens and the earth and that delivers his people from slavery is also the very hand in which our times are secured. God knows what, God knows you. And he knows what's going on. And finally, in our brief survey here about what the hands of God do, in our brief survey, survey, it's Jesus who sits at the right hand of God. You know this. Who, it's Jesus who sits at the right hand of, that did all of these magnificent things, right? This position of Jesus is actually foretold in Psalm 110. You can write this down or look it up. It's going to be on the screen. It's Psalm 110, verse 1. You've seen this before. The Lord, the Lord God says to my Lord, this is what David says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Do you know that this is the most oft-quoted psalm in the entire New Testament? Quoted more often than any other psalm. Jesus' earliest followers read Jesus' life into this psalm and believed Jesus to be David's Lord in this passage. Because he refers to someone else here as Lord. There's two different words, two different Hebrew words for Lord. So the first one is Yahweh, and the second one's Adonai. So there's two people being referred to here. And Jesus actually commented on this passage in Matthew chapter 22, verse 43. It's really an amazing little insight into the the knowledge of Jesus, that David spoke this psalm by the power, or at least in the Spirit, literally overhearing a conversation. Jesus says that in Matthew 22. Now, we see this psalm fulfilled in the New Testament. Let me give you one of the passages. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let's read this together. Therefore, since we are surrounded... I love this passage, by the way. We're starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, after his resurrection, sat down at God's right hand. Now, There's a reason why he's sitting down. He's sitting down because his work is finished. 
He's done. All of his work in being born and being the incarnation of God was completed at his resurrection and his ascension. So he sits down. There's nothing left for him to do. So he sits right now waiting for his return beside the hand which created and delivered and holds. It's right now where Jesus sits. Now, if you've been going to church all your life, or even if not, these images probably are not unfamiliar to you. You've probably heard some of these before. This is not new information. We recognize this language. We understand this. But I want to I kind of offer you something. Meeting Jesus again for a second time, or maybe even meeting Jesus for the first time, it actually affords us a second look at what God's hands do. I think so. And there are actually some other things that God does with his hands, some things that I think are going to surprise you because they surprise me. So our text for the rest of our time is going to be from Colossians chapter 2. If you want to open up your Bibles, you can have that. It should be on your printed notes. It's Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 9 through 15. That's a lot of words here, but it's worth reading all of it together. Here we go. Verse 9, for in him, or in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled with him, who is the head of all rule and authority. What great images about Jesus. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, and you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Really powerful passage about the work and the power of Jesus. But in these few verses, subtly hidden, I'm going to, I'm going to pull them out for you in a minute. There are actually three, I'm not kidding here, there are three distinct and surprising things that God does with his hands. And all three of them have everything to do with you, all of them, with us. Let's look at them. The first surprising thing that God does with his hands is this. God marks you with his hands. He marks you. Let me show you what I mean here. So we're going to read again a couple of verses from that passage. We're going to read verses 11 and 12 again. Here we go. In him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, in these couple of verses, Paul says something really unique here. And he says this, that the believer receives, and we're going to say the phrase here, a circumcision made without hands. Now, let's unpack this just for a minute. Now, the physical act of circumcision was a physical distinction 
reserved only for Jewish people during the time in which Paul lived. Everyone else thought it was barbarism. It's a barbaric act. So when, G, when Paul is talking about this, he's making a comment that non-Jewish people are circumcised without the use of hands. And that statement there is a statement, and this is a big one, it's about identity. It's not about a physical action. It's about identity. Now, let me get back to that in a second. Among New Testament writers, let's kind of take a little detour here. Among New Testament writers, saying that something, anything was made without human hands was a way to say that God did that thing. It's a way to say that God did that thing. I'm going to show you a couple of passages here. You can write them down. It's from Acts chapter 7, verse 48, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. So in, in, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen says that God does not live in houses made with human hands. You've heard that before. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that our eventual home is a house not made with human hands. So let's kind of put those two thoughts together for just a minute. Being circumcised without human hands is Paul's way of saying that you are marked by God, but there's no physical transaction on your part. You're marked not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Through Jesus' death, whose flesh was stripped from him, you're marked, you're chosen, and you're special. That's the first thing here in this passage, the very first surprising thing that God does with his hands. The second thing, the second surprising thing that God does with his hands is this. God convicts you with his hands. He convicts you with, your, with his hands. Now, that's a big one. You've been found guilty. It's a, it's a big breaking news moment here. You have been found guilty because it turns out from this very passage that God doesn't take sin lightly. It matters to him. Sin is an offense. It's an offense to the glory of God. And our sin, your sin and my sin, has been noticed. It's been noticed by God. In fact, oh man, in fact, God has written down every sin you've ever committed. Let me show you how I know this. It's all right here. Paul used a pretty interesting word in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. So we're going to read these two verses in context. Verse 13 and verse 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, tucked right there in verse 14 is one specific Greek word that I can't pronounce, but it's only used here in the entire New Testament. I'm going to show you another English translation of this verb. It's actually the King James Version. It's kind of cool, which actually says it a little bit better. So let's read verse 14 from the King James Version blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, that phrase right there in the King James Version, this handwriting of ordinances, in the Greek language, that's just one word. 
And again, it's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. But here's what it meant. It meant a written list of legal charges against someone. A writing of the laws someone has broken. It was a legal term. Legal charges handwritten in a document ready for a trial. Paul says that God wrote your sins down, that he wrote them down on paper in one place. That's pretty startling. So I want you to think about this. The very hand that created the heavens and the earth, the hand that delivered the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery, the hand that holds our times, the hand beside which Jesus now sits, that hand spent hours in eternity. I don't even know how that happens, but he spent hours in eternity writing writing the entire list of sins I've committed, the ones you've committed, and every sin that we'll ever commit. He's written them down. That's what this phrase means. Every thoughtless deed, every premeditated action, every selfish decision, every lie or salacious word ever spoken, every evil thing you've ever ignored, the hand that created the universe also recorded every sinful act of every believer with, get this, with specific references and reasons why those actions were sinful. This paper was filled with God's handwriting. It's important for us to know that our sin has not gone unnoticed. There, There was a record of it. God wrote it down. And that is an absolutely surprising thing that God does with his hands, is that he writes down your sin. You're guilty. I'm guilty. We've been charged. We're worthy of punishment because of the offenses we've committed against God. But there is one more surprising thing that God does with his hands. This is it. God clears you with his hands. He clears you. Let's read these two verses again. This is verses 13 and 14 from Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, Paul wrote that this handwriting of ordinances, this record of debt here in this translation was canceled. That's what he wrote. But there's something else hidden here. This is why I love this. This is why I love scripture. The actual Greek word that's translated as canceling here, one guess as to what it also means. Erase. It means to erase. I'm not kidding about that. That's super cool. So after recording every single sin that you've ever committed or that you will ever commit, the Father, through, because of his action through Jesus, erased the entire list, erased it all. A lot of translations say it's been destroyed, it's been canceled, But I think Paul's using some specific language here. I think he's saying this on purpose. He's saying that the mighty hand of God in an act of recreation took his pencil, turned it upside down, 
and erased every letter and every word and every sentence. The words and the letters and the sentences that he had just written of our own condemnation. And listen, this act of erasing, it's not, it's not a careless, flippant act. God, God is not an unwilling deity. He's not aggravated or annoyed. This erasing was done, and it's described here by the force of the metaphor, by nailing this handwritten list of our offenses to the cross. In other words, there was an action done through the crucifixion of Jesus that was painful, and it was torturous, and it was bloody. Jesus's body bore the handwritten offense of every believer who's ever lived and who will ever live. In fact, it's not too far to say that Jesus's body was the very piece of paper that contained every vile deed we will have ever committed, right there on Jesus's body. But praise God for Jesus that through his death, our sins are erased and we're white as snow. And these are the surprising things that God does with his hands. But I got to caution you on something. The hands of God are being parodied by the spirit of the age, and you need to know this. So on September 23rd, 2021, the drug manufacturer, Pfizer, you've heard of Pfizer, new word in our vocabulary the past couple of years, Pfizer, along with a Chinese marketing company, launched a marketing campaign for the people of the Yi ethnic group in a remote region of China. And they did this by using drones. They did this by using drones. And for 20 minutes, it's pretty, pretty spectacular, drones formed different shapes in the sky to relay six basic medical messages to this remote group. Things like the importance of childhood vaccination and the importance of washing your hands. But I want to show you the final image of this drone show. This is the final image. Now, the hand on the left here, meant to mimic the hand of God from Michelangelo's painting. It's not the hand of God in this drone show. It's the hand of a medical professional. You can tell because of the, the end of his shirt. And the hand on the right in this image, meant to mimic the hand of Adam in Michelangelo's painting. It's not the hand of Adam here. It's the hand of a Chinese national. Now, now the message, it's obvious. Here, here, the medical professional is the one who gives life. And we know this because of the tag at the end of the show. Let me show you what it says at the very end of the drone show. It says, science will win. Now, listen to me carefully. I'm not demeaning science. I'm not demeaning medical care. Of course, by the grace of God, humanity has made incredible advances and innovations in medical care, many of which my own family has received. Praise God for good doctors and good surgeons and good medicine. But the parody here is it's hard to ignore. 
I mean, you kind of hear the message here. Whereas we once only dreamed of painting ceilings, now we can paint the sky. And whereas once we thought that the God of some ancient book could give life, we've advanced beyond such meager reasoning and have seen the life that we now can create. And science is now the God of the age and the creator and the giver of life. According to this video, and according to this video, this, this, this PR campaign, science can't be stopped. Now, I'm not here to judge what Pfizer meant in all of this. I, I, it doesn't really matter to me, but I think it's pretty safe to remember Oscar Wilde's comment that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can repay to greatness. Let me end with showing you Michelangelo's painting of the hand of God. As we end the night, I want you to stare at this for a minute. And I want to encourage you to just with one final encouragement here. Accept no imposter. Accept no substitutes. God's hands created you, formed you, built you, marked you, charged you as guilty, and then erased those charges. And he did all of this through his son, Jesus. You know what the hand of God does? It gives life. Don't ever forget that.